Thanks for having me on. Yeah. How's your day going? Uh, my day's good. Like, are, are we live now or is that? Yes. Yeah, we're live. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right on. Right on. Yeah. Sure. My day's going good. It's a beautiful day in, in Vancouver. And uh, yeah, I've had a good morning so far. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so this is live right now, but most people listen on Spotify and Apple afterwards. So that'll be up in the next few days at some point, this podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I really wanted to talk to you because I'm fascinated that you are openly selling classic psychedelics in downtown Vancouver without any legal uh, issues or ramifications and you're 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 allowing access people to these incredibly uh, powerful medicines um, which you know can be mis- misused in certain circumstances but in other circumstances can be incredibly healing and I was recently there with my friend Parker and we we were just amazed at the store just seeing the variety of things you have there I mean you for for one thing like you were openly selling DMT DMT pens and um, the actual DMT itself and San Pedro, peyote, LSD, mushrooms, of course, uh, the, the mescaline, the synthesized uh, psychedelics. It was a really interesting experience. And I'm just very, very curious on how this all started for you and how it's going right now. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we're the only place in the world where you can walk in and access all these kind of products in, in one place. And, uh, I mean, I've been working on these kind of things for 30 years now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've got a lot of history in the cannabis reform movement and helping create the marijuana party and founding the, one of the first cannabis dispensaries in Vancouver and cannabis culture magazine and all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, we, our dispensary that we opened, uh, really, we spent a lot of time teaching others how to open their own cannabis dispensaries and how to build this kind of mass civil disobedience movement for marijuana across the country. And I think it's time for the same thing when it comes to psychedelics and really when it comes to all other substances as well. And uh, so, yeah, there's a bit of a risk involved creating a place like this. Uh, and we've taken it one step at a time. We were slowly adding new products and we're going to be adding new things in, in over time as well. There's still a lot more to, to come. Uh, but, uh, you know, when there was a lot of cannabis shops around, the Vancouver police were asked, like, why aren't you raiding these places and shutting them all down? And they said, look, it costs us about $30,000 to raid a cannabis dispensary. They reopen again the next day, sometimes the same day. And the courts, you know, prosecutors don't want to charge them. Courts aren't willing to, to prosecute them or put them in jail. So it's not worth our effort. And I feel it's going to be the same when it comes to these substances as well. And the police have been asked about our operation. And they say basically that, you know, we're aware of what Mr. Larson is doing. And we're keeping an eye on it, but we have bigger fish to fry and we're really focused on the big time dealers and on the violent gangs and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I have had some blowback. I mean, it's not totally without uh, controversy. You know, before we opened, I, I, I announced I was going to be doing uh, launching a mail order mushroom dispensary and that I was going to be opening a storefront soon. And uh, one of our Vancouver City councillors, Melissa Diginova who's kind of an antagonist of mine. We spar on Twitter a lot. She always complained about the 420 Festival in Vancouver that I was helping to put on. And she put a motion at city council trying to, like, stop. I mean, it was basically a proactive motion to stop Dana from opening a, a mushroom dispensary storefront. But it was way over the top. It had things in there about people injecting mushrooms and Middle Eastern drug gangs in the mushroom trade and, like, stuff that was just way, like, crazy 
things oh. to bring up, right? Way over the top. And everybody laughed at her, basically. Oh, the Vancouver community really rallied. There was a lot of speakers that came out, and people sharing compelling stories about how mushrooms and psychedelics had benefited them. All the other city councillors kind of mocked her, and the motion failed. And so that showed that our city council, I think, is progressive and understands that, you know, mushroom dispensaries aren't, like, the biggest threat to the city. The police aren't interested in arresting me. And so there's risks involved. I did get a letter from the city a couple of months ago from, like, the city staff saying, hey, you're not supposed to be selling mushrooms. We're going to start finding you and finding your landlord if you don't stop doing that. But uh, we'll deal with that. And a fine is a bit different than, you know, being handcuffed and, and put in jail or whatever, right? So... We'll have some legal challenges, but I really hope that this sparks a movement and that we see others uh, imitating what we're doing. And this spreads across Canada in the same way that cannabis dispensaries spread across Canada, which ultimately led to legalization. Yeah. And uh, how much was this fine? Sorry, what's your question? Are you, are you allowed to say how much the fine was? Well, we haven't been fined yet. That's still a process, right? So we had a court hearing about a month ago, I think. I didn't go. or Just our lawyers go. It's like a discovery thing where they all trade documents. I mean, we have no desire to rush through any legal process. So hopefully this takes a year or more, and then maybe we get a fine for several thousand dollars. I don't really know. I don't think it's good. The fines are affordable and manageable. They're not, you know, way, they're not hundreds of thousands or anything like that. Uh, so this can all be dealt with. There's challenges, but I mean, really the city, normally if you're breaking the law, the city would send in the police. So the police wouldn't get sent in. The police would make a decision to come and arrest you. But the business license thing is a different kind of situation. And we actually have a business license. You know, we, we started off as a cafe. We didn't sell mushrooms and other things in the beginning. We got a business license and then we added products to our menu. So we do have a business license. We're operating, as far as I can tell, within all the parameters of the city's licensing protocols but there'll be some court discussions to talk about this and if those drag on for a year or two that's uh fine with me i'm in no rush to get anything resolved so when did you start this store we opened in october 2020 uh but we just that was called the coca leaf cafe and that's half of what we do there is a cafe and the one product, which is actually the most illegal thing there, is coca leaf and coca leaf tea, because that's a Schedule 1 drug. Obviously, you make cocaine out of coca leaf, but the leaf has been chewed and drunk as a tea for thousands of years, and it's a big part of uh, you know uh, Andean South American culture. Uh, and uh, so we sell coca leaf, coca leaf tea. So we just started out with that. And then, and then uh, that was October 2020. And then in uh, 21, we added the mushrooms and some other products. And we've been, you know, we've added the LSD bottles and the DMT vape pens. We also sell Kratom as well, which is a, a wonderfully, a wonderful tree. It's a tree. The leaves of this tree it grows in Southeast Asia. You grind it up into a powder and it's got opiate-like properties. And it's very useful for those who want to substitute or reduce or eliminate their opiate use. You can use uh, the kratom instead. So we sell all kinds of interesting plants and herbs, and uh, we'll be coming up to our two-year anniversary in the fall, or about a year and a half since we brought in the mushroom dispensary into the space. Wow! Wow, that's amazing. And, and, and kratom, by the way, that has it, it has MDMA-like properties, right? From what I've heard from people, like it creates well, a lot of euphoria. It's more like opiate. I mean, it's not the same, but it's more like an opiate, you know. So it has pain relieving properties. It's it's sedative and relaxing. It's a bit like cannabis, and then it comes in different flavors. So you got red, white, and green kratom, and the red is kind of like indica, like it's relaxing and pain relieving, and the the white is sort of like sativa, and that it's invigorating and energizing, and then the green is kind of in the middle. 
but we have a lot of people that use it as a substitute for taking opiates. Uh, if they if we shut down or they couldn't get kratom anymore, they would probably uh, be taking street drugs and oxycodone and fentanyl or whatever to get what they needed. So it's you know there's risks with kratom. Like if you take a lot of it every day for a long period of time, it can be hard to quit and it has withdrawal symptoms and things. But it's definitely less of all of that than heroin or fentanyl or oxys or things like that have. And, uh, and it doesn't, if you take too much, you don't like, it doesn't put you into respiratory distress where you die. If you take way too much, it's more like an alcohol overdose where you'll feel nauseous and maybe throw up, but that is much safer than, than risking, uh, you know, uh, stopping breathing. So it's, it's a much safer alternative to, to opiates and especially to street opiates. And, uh, and yeah, it's one of the, one of the things that we have available. I don't know anywhere else in Van- and you can get it online. There's quite a few places that sell it over the internet, but I don't know of any other storefronts in Vancouver that are selling it over the counter. Mm. Yeah. I was looking into trying Kratom myself and I was, I was looking at if there are any other, uh, uses for Kratom other than just to substitute opioids. Well, people use it as uh, as before exercising. I know people that talk about taking a, a white strain. One person was posting how they take some of our coca leaf powder and they mix it with white kratom powder and make a tea out of it, and they use that before working out. And uh, definitely coca is good before working out. It's very energizing. It increases your oxygen flow. It has a lot of health benefits. Uh, and I think I know people that use the white kratom in the same way, more as a stimulating substance uh, than a sedating pain relieving one. So it also depends on the dosage you take, kind of like with cannabis too. Like a smaller dose is more invigorating and energizing and a larger dose could be more sedating and more relaxing. So, uh, and for most people, if you're not, if you're not taking an opiate and you're just trying kratom for the first time, you just need a couple of grams. You don't need to take a very large amount. You know, if you're, if you're taking fentanyl and you're trying to substitute your fentanyl with Kratom, you might need a much bigger dose of it to, to, mat, to match your need. But for a typical person who's just trying it for the first time and is not currently taking opiates, you just need a teaspoon, basically, is all you really need to, to get a good effect. Mm. Yeah, I'm interested in the red variant because I have a lot of anxiety and a lot of chronic pain. So I'd be looking for something that would uh, help with uh, relaxing my nervous system. Well, you know, come down and talk about it. We've got all kinds. Yeah. So there's several, sure. the, the way it works is you got the color, then you have the, the country. So you have like red valley, red Vietnamese, red Thai, then you oh, have wow. green valley, green that. So every strain name is the color and then a region. And that's wow. all, how all the different ones are there, right? So we have about 12 different kinds. We got like five reds and three greens and four whites or something like that. There's also like super strains where it's kind of more concentrated and a bit stronger. That's for most people, that's not really needed. But if you're like, like I said, if you're someone who's substituting for opiates and you need a really big dose, you might want to take a few grams of the super variety instead of like 20 grams of a regular one, right? So, but the super ones really are only for people that need a really much stronger dose. Mm. And uh, well, one other thing about Kratom, uh, how long does it last in your system? I mean, it lasts several hours, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, three or four hours at least, maybe more. You know, I've had one guy I was talking to who, who was using opiates and having, he said, I have to, you know, take heroin every few hours or I, I start to get a withdrawal. And when he took a Kratom dose, he lasted him all day. 
Uh, you said you took one in the morning and one in the evening. So it depends on the person, but you get several hour, hours out of it. You know, it, it, it lasts longer than, than injecting or smoking a drug certainly does because you're eating it is going through your system more slowly and uh, stays in your body a lot longer. So you don't get the same kind of, you know, rush you would get from injecting or, or inhaling a big blast of something, but you get a much longer, more stable pain relieving beneficial effect, whatever you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And what was your intention in opening the store? Like what, what, what do you ideally want for your store to do uh, in the city of Vancouver? Like do you want, there's some kind of broader intention of giving healing to, to people or giving access to these powerful therapeutic drugs for people to deal with their issues or. I want to. I, I want to dismantle and end the war on drugs in Canada and around the world. That's kind of my life's mission. I've been working on this since I was a teenager. We started with cannabis. And although cannabis legalization in Canada is not perfect by any means, the reality is it's the greatest drop in annual arrests from year to year uh, when cannabis was legalized. And what we've done in Canada is really transformative and is going to inspire and create change around the world. And I think Canada, especially Vancouver, is really uniquely positioned to be the city that, that leads the world in ending the whole war on drugs. And my shop, I guarantee there's going to be a couple of dozen mushroom-type shops in Vancouver within the next year and probably over a hundred across Canada within a couple of years. I don't think they'll all do everything that I'm doing. Like the, the coca leaf is pretty challenging to bring into the country. You know, mushrooms are readily accessible. LSD is not that hard to find in Canada, you know, DMT and that. So I expect to see psychedelic shops opening across the country. I really want to inspire others to go, Hey, Dana's been doing that for a year and he's been doing okay. I'm going to do one too. It'll be harder in other cities, just like it was with cannabis, but people will do it and they're going to be coming. And I think the whole war on drugs is the greatest human rights violation and something that affects us in every possible way, far more than most people realize how deeply entrenched and how harmful the global drug war is on every level uh and that uh i want to end it and i think that civil disobedience and mass civil disobedience is the way to do it and you know i'd also love to be able to provide heroin to people to have some kind of heroin buyers club or heroin compassion club or something and you know you'd make that available a little bit differently than you do mushrooms and lsd but my goal is to is to to break all these laws to make these substances available in a safe and responsible way as much as possible to set a template for what legalization should look like and uh, to challenge the whole system. And I, I, I don't think anyone's really going to stop us here. You know, there'll be bureaucratic challenges in Vancouver, but the police in Vancouver are not going to raid places like mine. And, you know, if the cops did come in tomorrow and arrest me and empty our shelves and, and charge us, it would be great for business. It would People would hear about me in a way it would make national news, probably international news, our store would be packed the next day with far more customers than ever before. And so I think they kind of know that as well, that, that drawing attention, it doesn't always stop things. It actually can make you stronger in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I did this uh, cannabis seed giveaway uh, several years ago where I traveled across the country giving away free uh, cannabis seeds. And I ended up over three years giving away 10 million seeds across Canada. We called it Overgrow Canada. And the biggest part of the success in that campaign was that I got arrested in Calgary at my second stop and spent the night in jail for giving away cannabis seeds. And because of that arrest, I was trending on Facebook and Twitter and it was the national news. It was a giant story. It was the best thing for the tour that could have happened. 
And that allowed me to give away millions more seeds because people had never heard about me before. And suddenly they were hearing about it because it was in the news. So police action can sometimes be very useful if they overreach. Uh, you know, it depends on the situation. If they totally shut you down and put you in jail for 10 years, and that's a bit harder to, to fight against. But luckily, we're in Canada and in Vancouver, which uh, is a country which I don't think is going to want to put me in jail for a long time for doing this kind of stuff mm-hmm. in a city where the police just are not interested in, uh, in, in taking this on. Mm. And uh, does the federal law prohibit uh, mushroom access and LSD and DMT access? Well, yeah, this is a Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Uh, it's our federal drug, anti-drug laws and uh, selling LSD and DMT. They're both Schedule Three drugs. Uh, cocaine and heroin and um, other things are in Schedule One. Cannabis is in its own schedule and all the hash and all that kind of stuff, Schedule Two. And then... Uh, and then like schedule four and five or other, you know, milder kind of things. But these are all schedule three drugs. They're all criminal offenses. I could be charged. Uh, and, you know, we do mail order with the mushrooms as well. I'm not the only guy selling mushrooms online in Canada, but I am the only guy with my name attached to it. And that is something that puts us in other jurisdictions. So technically the RCMP, for instance, could, you know, purchase mushrooms from me over the Internet, have them mailed to a different city and then come and raid me themselves if they wanted to. You know, we had a situation several years ago, uh, pre-legalization, maybe post-legalization, when Mark Emery was opening, he had like a, a shop in Montreal, a cannabis shop that he was doing there, part of the cannabis culture. And the, the police out east wanted the Vancouver police to raid the cannabis culture shop here as part of their investigation. The VPD said no. We're not going to do that. So the Toronto cops flew out to Vancouver to do the raid themselves. And, and the, it was, and the VPD came to like sort of keep the peace, but they, they, the VPD actually called me. One of the officers that I have a relationship with called me and said, Dana, we want you to know this is not a Vancouver police raid on cannabis culture. Yes, we have some officers there, but we have to go as a, as a courtesy when other officers come. But they asked us to do this raid and we said no. And so we, the Toronto cops had to spend thousands of dollars flying out here to do this raid themselves. So and I'm not I mean, I don't have a lot of police friends or anything, but I thought that was pretty remarkable that the police cared enough about what I think that they actually called me to confirm that this was not them doing this raid and that they were not interested in raiding cannabis culture. So, I mean, theoretically, the RCMP or another police force could do the same thing. They could order from me on the Internet and then fly out to Vancouver and arrest me here for trafficking in mushrooms. That is a real risk. Yeah, I don't think it's very likely, but it's possible. But I don't think the VPD are going to come in and, and, and charge me. But, you know, there's no guarantees on that or anything, but that's just... What I see, and certainly I'm not, I'm not the only guy in Vancouver selling mushrooms either. There are other shops doing this. I think they've also probably gotten letters saying, hey, you know, you got to stop selling mushrooms. They're going to fine you. And the city will deal with it bureaucratically in a, a very slow fashion. But, you know, ultimately that can be successful, but it might take several years. Mm. And uh, what's the punishment for selling or buying or, or spreading access to uh, psychedelic usage? Well, I'm not quite sure. It depends on the quantity. I mean, I think I would face several years in prison for for the amount of, of mushrooms and drugs we have at our place and coca leaf and everything else. I mean, we if, if I was charged, particularly me, I mean, if you were just some guy in your house and the police came to your house and you had all these drugs sitting in your house, especially in a city other than Vancouver, you would definitely be charged with trafficking in, in, in drugs, right? Like if you had a bunch of, of, of MDA, oh, not MDA, but LSD and DMT and mushrooms and create them in your house they would definitely charge you but 
you know, in my situation, I think it's highly unlikely. But yeah, you would face several years in prison. We would mount a vigorous constitutional challenge and bring up, you know, medicinal use of mushrooms, which is becoming more accepted and has legal precedence. If they charged me with coca leaf, we would talk about the cultural and social implications of coca and how coca leaf is different than cocaine and bring up issues like that. Uh, but but yeah, I, I do face, I mean, under the, 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 the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, this is all very illegal and I I could and should be sentenced to several years in prison. Mm. And if you were in a different city, if you'd opened up the medicinal mushroom dispensary in, say, Calgary, Edmonton, or Kelowna, other places in BC, you most likely would be arrested? Maybe, yeah. I think I'd be arrested. Some, it depends, you know. It depends on the city and on the circumstances, but the odds are much greater. I mean, I compare it very much to what happened with cannabis, right? The first dispensaries were in Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, uh, cities that either are bigger and have other stuff going on or where the police don't want to make it a priority. Although there were a lot of raids in Toronto, there also were and still are unlicensed cannabis shops operating in Toronto now. And there's still a few in Vancouver, too. I have one of them. We're still going despite legalization and licensing. We're still kind of old school. But there, there was a lot open, but there was harder in other cities. But when I mean, we had cannabis dispensaries in Calgary, Edmonton, like pretty much every major city had a couple operating one way or another before legalization happened. Vancouver had over 100, and it was definitely like the capital of cannabis in Canada. Uh, but everywhere had some. You know, some were more discreet, some were more open, some would get raided sometimes, and then they would reopen. But I said, I mean, this was, this was, it was this way with bong shops, too, in the 90s, by the way, right? You couldn't sell bongs and pipes in Canada in the 90s. That, they were all banned and, uh, and were technically banned until legalization happened. And, and we saw the same thing. The first bong shops were in Vancouver, Toronto, like in the 90s, reopening. They would get raided in smaller towns. People would, cities would take away their business licenses for selling pipes and bongs. You had to label them for tobacco use only to try to pretend you weren't providing them for marijuana and stuff. And then that eventually, nobody cared about bongs anymore. And then we had marijuana sales all across the country and cities resisted and fought them. But after a while, they stopped caring and more and more opened. And, uh, and I think we're going to see, and with mushrooms, I think it'll even be faster in a way because mushrooms, I think, are less controversial than cannabis is in some ways. And so I, I think we're going to see a lot of mushroom shops out there and some will get raided, some will have problems, but I don't think anybody in Canada is going to be going to jail for any kind of significant time for selling mushrooms. And I think that means that ultimately people are going to take that risk, just like they did with cannabis. Mm. That's great news that that's happening. Um, I, I also want to ask you about your personal experience with psychedelics. Do you have, or do you have any particularly powerful healing experiences on any of these substances that led you to open up the store? Yeah, yeah. I, I used to, I mean, when I was younger, in my late teens, early 20s, I used to take a lot of LSD. It was it was the really more available to me than mushrooms were at the time. And I had some very transformative experiences, I think, that helped me to be less afraid and to be more, uh, you know, try to achieve your highest potential and to, to be all you can be and that kind of stuff. Uh, I had a few very profound DMT experiences uh, where I would see 
the future in some ways or see where my path is going. And, and those were quite powerful at times. Uh, you know, these days I don't, I take mushrooms once in a while. I'll take a grab of mushrooms, but I do microdose quite a bit now, having them really accessible to me. I was microdosing mushrooms quite a bit and I found that was quite nice. But these days I'm microdosing LSD a lot more. And I find that Mushrooms are more emotional and healing and opening, and I feel more connected to people, and you feel more forgiving and and uh, and those kind of positive emotions, you know. And I think if you're dealing with PTSD or trauma and that, that mushrooms can be very healing in that way. But with the LSD, I find it's more like motivating and, and intellectual, and gets me to like do work and to to be more functional and and and, and more productive and uh, to kind of to achieve my potential more. And I, I like that. So I've been LSD microdosing fairly regularly the last while. And, uh, you know, all, all these substances I think have wonderful benefits. I used to, to drink, used to drink a lot of coffee and now I, I rarely drink coffee, but I drink a lot of Coca tea. And mm. so, uh, you know, but, uh, but for me, yeah, psychedelics have definitely given me a lot of insights into myself and to other people and understanding things better. Uh, you know, I guess one of my most remarkable experiences was a DMT trip. I had the very first time I ever experienced DMT. And um, I, you know, you always know where you are, but at the same time, you're in some other dimension. And uh, I met some beings there who took me on a little pathway and brought me to a place where there was uh I don't know how really to describe it anymore, but kind of a, a blue mandala kind of a shape with runes and hieroglyphs and things. But I got the impression this was a baby and this was my child or that my baby in some way. And it passed something into my stomach, kind of through my, my belly button into my body in some way. And I said, thank you out loud. And, and, and I never had an experience where I kind of like had a little story to it. You know, I've had a lot of interesting things on psychedelics, but not, you don't meet anybody in the astral plane or, you know, have a little story. It's more like you see things or get insight. So that was a very unique experience. And then shortly after that, uh, my daughter was conceived. And so I, I feel like I, you know, I met my, my preconceived daughter on the astral plane in some way. You know, you can interpret that how you will. I don't usually put a lot of, uh, I mean, it's, it's either something in your mind or it's something in the world. Or maybe there's no difference between those two things. I don't know. But that was one of my most interesting experiences on psychedelics was, uh, was that sort of meeting this, this preconceived child in another dimension. And, and what do you mean by you saw this baby? That was a little vague. Like, was it, um, like how was it manifesting? Was it a visual thing? Well, I had my eyes closed, right? So I knew where I was. I was sitting in my room at my home or whatever. But when I closed my eyes, I, I, and this is something that happened 25 years ago, right? So it's a little bit, you know, sometimes I'm telling the story of the, of the, of the story. But I, I, uh, I closed my eyes and I was in a space. I was in kind of a room and there was sort of humanoid beings there. But all the colors, they were the same color as their background and the colors were kind of shifting. They were doing something complicated. They turned their attention towards me. I said hello out loud, I think, and then they took me kind of through a passageway or through like a tunnel, sort of moved through a tunnel of light, and we came to a space, and there was, it looked like two overlapping ovals kind of growing into each other at cross angles with a ring around each of them, and on the rings were kind of all sorts of hieroglyphs and, and symbols and things that seemed to have deep, profound meaning that was just beyond my ability to comprehend you know, when you take a piece of paper and you cut it and you make like a snowflake, you unfold it and it becomes like a snowflake. It was sort of like that. 
on, on these on these uh, rings. But I just felt like it was a it was not it didn't look like a baby or anything. But I felt you know energetic, like in a dream sometimes, right? Where things are other things, and even though they don't look like it, you know that this person is really that person or whatever, right? Things sort of feel like that. So I felt like this was an infant or a baby, and then it. it put something in my belly button or into my body that way right so i'd never had an experience like that before on any kind of a, a drug or anything and i think that dmt does often produce these kind of feelings that you're encountering other intelligent beings whether they're angels or elves or spirits or other you know whatever you want to call them right or parts of your own mind probably what it is but whatever you want to call this stuff you're you feel like you're piercing the veil of reality and kind of seeing seeing the, the people that run things behind the scenes in some way. Mm. Yeah, and I just want to uh, clarify there. I know we're in uh, very strange ground here, but like you, you were saying, you, you you thought that that was the baby. Are you talking about the ovals? With the hi- yeah, the yeah, the ovals and the line around. That seemed to be some sort of being or something. Yeah, okay. like that was that. I think that was my kid's pre creation form or however i you know i don't know but i mean that that's what i saw anyways and sure that's how it looked to me i don't you know yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah i mean it's it's one thing to make like an objective claim and broaden it out to everybody um or to just universally but obviously these things are very personally meaningful and then you know it's not it's not necessarily that you can you know prove this in any like scientifically rigorous way that like whatever you saw has any material value or scientific valence but these things are definitely powerful and they can change your life it's pretty incredible yeah yeah i don't think you have to necessarily believe that what i was perceiving was actually you know a human being who hadn't been conceived yet or whatever that doesn't really matter to me and i don't know i mean your own mind creates all of your reality anyways really so you know i don't really i just know what i experienced and how it felt i don't really put a lot of, of, of like attachment like this this means this was really this or this was really that i don't know yeah. it was an experience but these experiences can be incredibly profound very healing and beneficial uh to people and i think just really interesting like to me i think everybody should try a psychedelic at least once or twice in your life you don't have to do it all the time and maybe it's not for everybody but to me it's sort of like you know everybody should listen to music in their life and everybody should go for a walk in the forest and stuff. And like, there's just things that you should experience. And I think that these states can give you real insights about yourself, about reality, about how your consciousness works and how your mind works and what thinking is and all this kind of stuff, you know, and, and as well as great benefits for people dealing with trauma and trying to uh, unpack things that have happened to them or trying to integrate their experiences. You know, I get a lot of members who were on uh, antidepressants and they don't want to be on antidepressants anymore. They, they find that they numb their emotions and they, 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 they don't really help them resolve their issues. And I think a lot of antidepressants act by numbing your emotions. So you, maybe you don't feel those, those sad feelings anymore and those traumas anymore, but you don't also feel joy and happiness and love and excitement anymore either. And that the mushrooms and psychedelics, I think, help people to integrate those experiences so that they can move past it. And you're not trying to push it away and resist it, but you accept it that some bad things happened or that you were, but you're able to move past that. And, you know, I I compare it to sort of having the painting of your life. And if you're in this kind of depressed or post-traumatic state, you've only got, you know, black and 
blue to, to paint with. And that the, the, the mushrooms, they don't take away the black and blue paints, but they also give you yellow and red and orange and purple and other colors to paint with too and give you a broader perspective. And you can feel joy and happiness as well. And I, and I think that kind of healing process, and I don't know the neurochemical method that, that mushrooms do this or how, how a psychedelic is different than an antidepressant in terms of you know, what the chemistry is. They all affect the serotonin system, but this definitely seems like a, a different kind of thing. And unlike antidepressants, which you're encouraged to take every single day for very long periods, possibly your whole life, uh, mushrooms and psychedelics, they have a long-term healing benefit. So people usually get permanent benefits from a single trip or from microdosing for several months. People almost always decide they don't need to do it anymore or they only want to do it once in a while or they want to do it just you know seasonally maybe or when they're having a hard time or something like that. But it's definitely something that people tend to use and get benefits from and then it allows you to move on, which I think is like so important. And you know, it's better for business if someone's gonna take something every single day for the next ten years. That's way better for business, way more profitable. But I really like it when someone said emails us or says, Hey, I, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be buying anymore because I'm feeling really good about life. That's awesome. That's like a big success, right? So I think they're very different in that way. I know many people who have benefited tremendously from psychedelics, many people with PTSD, depression, eating disorders, anorexia, a number of things. And unlike with other drugs, they find this long-term healing um, that requires a lot of counseling and psychotherapy oftentimes. But unlike other drugs, it's not something that you uh, do all the time. It's not something you need to depend on um, in order to live. (coughs) And that's one question I have for you. I don't know if you've thought much about this, about the incentives of big pharma. And why a big pharma is so keen on um, getting people hooked on a number of drugs and why doctors are so quick to prescribe a number of medications and drugs. And, and they, they seem to selectively do that with, with, with drugs that are oftentimes more harmful and more dangerous than anything psychedelics could do. I mean, there are many drugs in uh, people's cabinets that are far more uh, potentially harmful um, at lower doses than psychedelics are, yet psychedelics are not like FDA approved, a doctor can't prescribe them to you. Um, but what do you think is going on there in terms of the inner workings of big pharma and their relationship to the medical infrastructure? I think that one of the biggest challenges in ending the war on drug users is that there's so much money involved and it's so profitable to keep this going. And so you're absolutely right to identify pharmaceutical companies as one of the big potential losers under legalization. They would like to see a legalization where synthetic psychedelics are patented and controlled by them. So they, if they can sell you synthetic mushrooms, they'd probably like that a lot better than everybody being able to sell and grow their own. And uh, that's a big part of it. I wouldn't say it's the only part of the equation. There's a lot of aspects of who profits from prohibition you know the whole prison industrial complex really feeds off of the war on drugs and the war on drug users generates and creates a lot of other crime uh people might not be arrested for drug crime specifically but the war on drugs causes everything from petty theft to gang shootings and everything in between uh and so absolutely there's so many institutions that are 
tied up in the profits and benefits of the war on drugs. And it's been going on so long in our society that it's, we, we don't recognize it as a, as, a, as a thing, how bad it is and how much it affects us because we were all born into it and we, we haven't really seen it develop, you know? And so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the leading cause of, of so many problems and global instability, you know, from the poppy fields in Afghanistan to the, the coca cartels in, in Colombia and the heavily armed and militarized gangs in, in Mexico. Uh, all of this uh, is, is because of the war on drug users and the war on drugs in general. And really, you know, the way I look at it, what we call the war on drugs, it's really a war on plants for the most part. And it's a war on the world's most medicinally useful, culturally relevant, socially beneficial plants, right? The coca leaf, the opium poppy, the cannabis flower, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, peyote cactus, uh, all of these things have like millennia of, of traditional use. And it's no coincidence that many of these are substances that were being used by indigenous peoples in the Americas and that the prohibition of these substances was tied into trying to culturally assimilate these groups into Christianity and into Westernism and banning coca leaf and things like that. A lot of it you know, ties into racism and colonialism and control. And uh, if you looked at our drug laws objectively, you would not like allow alcohol and tobacco and then ban marijuana and mushrooms. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? There's no logical, well, this is more harmful than that kind of thing involved in it. And a lot of it, they're very distorted. So it's hard to look at, at, you know, heroin or fentanyl and recognize that this is really a plant medicine origin. You know, it's been twisted and perverted, but it's a plant medicine, opium tea and opium poppies, very beneficial and useful. And I believe if we had never shut down the opium dens a hundred years ago, there would be no fentanyl crisis now. The people would be taking opium and smoking opium and drinking it. Some people would want something stronger. Some people would have problems with their opium use and have challenges with it or whatever, but they would not would not be what we're seeing now. You know, the misery and harm caused by this is, is just not there. And same with coca tea and coca leaf. You know, I've written articles about how in a parallel world, coffee got banned because coffee was very close to being banned and was prohibited at different times in history. And it could very easily be we live in a society where coffee and caffeine were banned and coca leaf and cocaine were allowed. And you think about it, you can go down and buy powdered caffeine by the kilo very cheaply. You can snort all the caffeine you want. And some folks do. There are people who like snorting caffeine, but they're in a tiny minority because if you like caffeine, you drink a lot of coffee or you drink energy drinks. And I feel if we had a world where coca leaf and coca products were totally accessible, sure, you could go buy pure cocaine and snort it. But why would you bother? You have all kinds of coca drinks. If you wanted a good coca blast, you drink a really strong coca drink or chew some coca chewing gum. Those kind of forms would be more popular. Of course, conversely, if coffee was banned, you know, caffeine snorting and caffeine substitutes and injection and stuff, those things would become popular. Really, it's, it's prohibition drives things into their most harmful forms. So... Part of what we're doing at our cafe is trying to reintroduce these, you know, with the coca tea and the leaf and that, trying to reintroduce the plant-based aspect to these medicines. I think, you know, cocaine and fentanyl should be legalized. If you really want to access that, you should be able to, just like you can access incredibly strong alcohol, you know, ever clear that you probably shouldn't be drinking. But you can buy it if you want to. But who, who drinks that? People drink beer and wine and maybe stronger alcohol. But so I think that's that's how we need to regulate these things. It's a war on plants and it's a war that is very profitable for all involved. And it's profitable for both sides. The cartels and the drug dealers love prohibition. It keeps the competition out. It keeps prices high. It gives them an essential monopoly. And the cops and the politicians love prohibition because 
It gives them lots of work to do. The cops get endless budgets and they make money too. The government and the cops get to seize all these nice cars and houses and property from people. That goes on their end. So they make money off it too. Everybody gets their cut. All these fines and things are really just the government and the cops benefiting off prohibition. So who doesn't benefit? Everybody else that's in the middle. The drug users, the regular people, the people who want safe communities, those are the losers. But the cops and the cartels, they're ultimately when it comes to the drug war, they're two sides of the same coin. They both benefit from this ongoing forever war. Mm. Yeah, and I think a large part of this comes from the government trying to be sort of everybody's parent, trying to control everybody. Like we sort of, we own what you do and we want to control more and more of what happens in your life. And that, that should be a, a parental issue. Like your parents should teach you the values that they think are important. You know, like I, I would not want my kids to do to, to be doing cocaine or to drinking or drinking hard alcohol or taking fentanyl. But that, that's sort of my job. Having the government do those kind of things, I think has a lot of diminishing returns and a lot of unintended consequences that uh, generally break down the fabric of society and attempt to, you know, t- take the role of, of parents and what they should be doing in educating their own children in terms of drug usage, alcohol usage, values, religion, spirituality, whatever it is, that should be more of an individual thing rather than a, a government catalyzed thing. Well, absolutely. I agree. And, but you know, this isn't something new, right? I mean, the war on drugs has been going on. It started around the turn of the century, really. It, it, it's not a new thing. It, it's something that, that's been around. And I'd say our society generally has becoming more tolerant and more open over the years. You know, things that other things that used to be crimes like homosexuality and gay behavior, all that stuff's not criminalized anymore. In terms of the government, like, you know, one of the last sort of groups that are that are targeted for prison and attachment simply for things they do in their own home by themselves are, are drug users, right? Uh, and it, it, I think it's harder to end the war on drug users in some way than other, than other groups maybe because of that pro- profit motive that there's so much involved. And, you know, it's also like people have a misconception of what a drug user is like, right? Because you see somebody on the street who's mentally ill and who's homeless and who's looking very bedraggled and acting in an odd way. And you go, oh, that guy, he took too many drugs, right? And he's, that, that's because of his drug use. But often it's the other way around, right? People that are, that are unstable end up being homeless or mentally, you know, they don't have a, there's no real place for them to go. They might start using drugs because, hey, if you're sleeping on the street and you're homeless, you're going to be in pain all the time. So taking a pain, that takes your pain away. That becomes pretty tempting, you know, and maybe there's a risk involved to your health, but your life kind of sucks anyway. So maybe taking away this immense pain is worth a bit of a risk to you. Like, you know, it's not necessarily an irrational decision. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes about it, it's kind of a funny thing, but like for over 100 years during the 1700s and much of the 1800s, there was a massive masturbation panic in the Western world where people believed that if you jerked off too much, you would go insane, you would become a criminal, and you would kill yourself. And this, this was a widespread belief. And if parents caught their children masturbating, they would tie their hands down to the bed. They would send them away to camps to be, like, re-educated and, and beaten and, like, tortured to stop touching themselves. And it was, like, a, for over 100 years, it was a huge thing. Doctors would write books about the harms of masturbation. You see pictures of, like, regular, you know, Chad guy. It'd be somebody looking really healthy. And then chronic masturbator with, like, sallow cheeks and all shrunken and weakened and stuff. 
And like, and obviously now masturbation, yeah, it's something you should do in private. And we might laugh about it, whatever. But if you don't, we recognize masturbating does not drive you crazy. But they'd go, look, see that guy on the street jerking off? He's crazy because he jerks, he's jerking off all the time. And it's like, no, that person has a mental illness. They're masturbating in public because they're mentally ill. They don't understand social boundaries and rules, right? But they're putting the cart, they're blaming the result on, they're putting it in the wrong order. And I think a lot of the drug use that you see publicly is the same thing. You don't see the, the drug users have their shit together because they're not on the street and they're not out there identifying themselves, right? You know, the person who masturbated regularly back then wasn't going to go, hey, I jerk off all the time and I'm sane. Who's going to say that? It's like no one's going to say, no, hey, I take heroin and I, I use it occasionally and I'm fine. No one's going to say that because they're not going to want to come out like that. And so it, maybe it's a funny parallel, but like it it was a real thing for a long time. This was a huge societal concern. It was entrenched into their society in every single way. Like children would be taught in school, like don't masturbate. It's terrible for you. Scouting had huge sections on not masturbating. Kids were taught it in school. It was ha just like now. We indoctrinate our kids. Don't take drugs from a very early age. They'll drive you crazy. They'll make you evil. Drug users are terrible people. They're violent. They're awful. They drive you insane. And it's like it's based on as much reality. And we look back now at the masturbation panic and go, well, that's fucking stupid. Well, who would believe that? And I hope that in 100 years, people look back now and go, well, that was stupid. Who would really believe that, you know, marijuana smoking is going to make you violent or that taking drugs inherently, you know, makes you terrible or that cocaine is terrible, but caffeine is awesome. And everyone, you know, all these kind of things are just so arbitrary, but we're so wrapped up in it as a society because it's been around for so long. It's kind of hard to see outside the box. And sometimes psychedelics can help you see outside the box and get things from a new perspective. Hmm. Well, I did not know about the <laughs> masturbation thing. And you, you said this was when? It was like over a hundred years from like the 1700s okay. until the 1800s in, in most of Europe. And I've written about it. It's something they don't really talk about it, but it was a huge thing. And it, it's, it's really interesting. I think there's a lot of parallels between that kind of huge social panic and other societal panics that happen at different times. You know, you can compare it to different things. But to me, it just seems like a real strong parallel. You know, we don't want our kids doing this. It's going to make them crazy and terrible. And, uh, and just indoctrinating society on so many levels about this. I, I can send you an article about it after if you want. There's a lot of... Sure. It's, it's really interesting reading, really, on wow. how everybody was so freaked out about this. And did a lot of harm. So they would tie kids' arms down to their beds. Yeah, they had special yeah. things, like special things you could put on your crotch so you don't... You know, like the Kellogg's, the whole, the, the whole Kellogg's cereal thing. That was all originally eating mushy, cold cereal for breakfast so you don't excite your body too much, so you don't get an erection eating hot food for breakfast that like would get you too turned on. So you got to eat like cornflakes and stuff. That whole cornflakes was invented to stop kids from masturbating. This is how much it was in their society wow. at the time. Like wow. these things that just seem like, yeah. what, how is that? But like it's all that was true. about not jerking off and they would torture children. Some of them recommended the, the, the Kellogg's guy. I'm pretty sure it was said he recommended giving your sons a circumcision without anesthetic to stop them from masturbating. This wow. is like torturing children in like terrible ways. Whatever you feel about circumcision, doing it to stop your kid masturbating without anesthetic, like it was torturous kind of things they would recommend to people. And uh, just like we often torture kids now to get them off drugs, we send kids to these centers, straight incorporated and stuff. And some of them, they do terrible things to children. Uh, it's been revealed. Look up straight incorporated sometime. It was a group that ran for a long time. 
and they went through thousands of kids and now these kids have got like websites where they get together and talk about all the trauma they went through they'd get them to spit on each other they'd force them to urine not let them go to the bathroom so they'd soil themselves they'd get them like this to do terrible things to them because they their parents got them smoking pot or something and so they'd send them to this place to like cure their drug addiction and they would just fuck them up and they did that to kids who were caught masturbating in the 1700s and now we're doing it to kids who get caught smoking a joint and it's like the same insane panic just repeated over again mm. yeah and, and i wonder how we'll look back on this uh assuming we'll we'll make some significant progress from here in terms of treating depression and ptsd i mean maybe 30 years from now we'll look at this time being totally crazy that we weren't readily widely treating people with these mental illnesses and using psychedelic therapies like like well like what are we doing right now if somebody has ptsd or chronic depression. I mean, we're giving them antidepressants. We're giving them different harmful medications. We're not actually addressing the root problem. And I think a few years from now, we'll look at it in a very different way. Um, I, I do want to switch over a little bit to um, a couple things at the store that I thought were interesting. Um, firstly, you had a bunch of, uh, you had San Pedro and peyote cactuses there. And somebody was explaining that uh, you have this because of some religious law that allows Canadians to use these things for religious purposes? Well, we would have them anyways, obviously, whether or not they were legal, just like the mushrooms and everything else. But actually, peyote in Canada was never prohibited. When they were looking at banning mescaline, they they thought about banning peyote as well. Like the active ingredient in peyote and San Pedro cactus is mescaline. It's the THC of those plants, right? And uh, and uh, uh, in Canada, there is a long indigenous tradition of using peyote it didn't grow in canada but there were trading routes and that uh, uh, indigenous people on the plains of canada would trade for peyote from like what's now texas and mexico and stuff and that it was part of their traditional use and actually i did an access to information request once and i got the internal government documents as to why they didn't ban peyote but they did ban mescaline so in the law it says on the list of things that are banned it says mescaline then in brackets it says not including peyote lafafra or whatever the name of the species, right? And uh, and it, it, they said that the reason they did that was because they thought about giving a religious exemption just to the indigenous religious groups that used peyote spiritually. But if they did that, they were worried it would create a legal precedent that the marijuana people and the mushroom people would then be able to say, well, we've got religious groups too. We're Rastafarians or Coptics or whatever. We want to have legal marijuana as well. And so to not set a legal precedent, and because nobody was taking whole peyote in any kind of significant way in Canada, and it wasn't really seen like mescaline might be a recreational whatever drug, but peyote was not. They said, we're just going to allow peyote for everybody but bad mescaline. And that was the specific reasoning behind it. So peyote was never banned in Canada. It's legal to grow and sell and consume peyote. But if you were to extract mescaline out of it, that then would be breaking the law. Wow. That's really interesting. And so, you, so you're selling San Pedro and peyote. Um, do you have any personal experience with this, with uh, mescaline broadly? I have not taken. I've used proscaline. We also sell proscaline there, which is a mescaline analog. Uh, so it's uh, there's a company called Microdelics, and they make a lot of... Uh, uh, like psychedelic analogs. So they're basically extremely similar 
to that substance. Some of them convert into that substance inside your body, but they're just off enough that they're not under the under the Controlled Drugs Act. Uh, but I've never taken peyote specifically. No, we sell live peyote plants. We have four different species of live peyote that we sell. We have uh, San Pedro and Peruvian torch and Bolivian torch and a few other variants they all look very similar and they're all quite similar to each other those ones san pedro has less mescaline than peyote does but it grows a lot faster so it's sort of a trade-off there in terms of how much you get uh but we have the dried peyote cactus and dried san pedro uh i've, I've taken a little bit you can microdose the peyote as well you know just like any psychedelic you can take a little bit and have a nice little experience or you can take a really big dose and have a really powerful experience you know, the challenge with peyote and with mushrooms for some people, but to a lesser extent, is it can produce nausea sometimes, right? So a, a real peyote ceremony often involves people throwing up. And I've done ayahuasca ceremonies where I've thrown up, and it can be quite a spiritual experience throwing up on psychedelics in some ways, you know, uh, very purifying and kind of uh, uh, feels really good. Although also, you know, throwing up is still throwing up, and who wants to do that if you don't have to? Uh, but that can be a challenge, but, but mescaline doesn't cause that mescaline, you know, it's like taking LSD. You just take the liquid and you have your experience, but, uh, I probably should take a bigger proscaline dose and have a mescaline thing. Mescaline like acid, you know, it lasts 10 to 12 hours, right? So that's really a full day for a full, for a full on trip, plus another day or two to integrate it. I, I have trouble. You know, I had a lot more time to take psychedelics when I was a younger man. These days, it's hard to devote like two or three days to a full on, you know, mushrooms you can take in a day. It lasts five hours. You, you get a good sleep that night. Mescaline and full on LSD trips. I've really got to set aside a weekend for something like that. Yeah. And yeah, I was very interested in the prosaline myself. Um, can you talk to me about your experiences with it? I, I mostly microdosed it. I haven't taken the, the mega dose, like a, you know, a full-on dose. And I, I find it's good. I, I think I like the LSD better, but I, I think the mescaline, it feels a bit more physical. Uh, I think I would, I would like to use it more if I was going to be working out or doing physical kind of things that I feel it gives me sort of a, like more stamina and kind of makes me want to like go out for a walk or go, you know, exercise or things, which, which are things I don't normally do. So it's probably good that it motivates me like that. Um, but like I said, I'm not personally. I don't have a ton of experience with the proscaline, but LSD and mescaline—they're all—they're all different. But I think LSD and mescaline are more similar to each other than, say, LSD and mushrooms are. Mm. And do you know if the proscaline produces any hallucinations at moderate or high doses? At high doses, it should. Yeah, uh, you need a pretty like you need a good like a psychedelic type dose. But yeah, it, it should produce those kind of. Uh, visual hallucination not like a dmt hallucination i don't think those are the most intense visual things i've ever had like smoking mm. dmt especially when you close your eyes uh very realistic intense bizarre visual effects and seeing beings and people holding boxes open and inside the box of somebody else and like things like that on lsd and mescaline i see typically more patterns and mandalas and you know, things, maybe straight lines are curving, walls are breathing, things look like they're flowing and moving. But I don't usually close my eyes and see, like, like realistic-looking things. I usually see more, yeah, more patterns and things like that, you know. It's interesting to, to as we will some, come to understand this better as these things are more allowed. Like, I, when I take DM, when I smoke DMT, I think, like, my brain is generating all of this imagery. And, it's, and then I think, well, of course, my brain is actually generating 
all the imagery I see all the time, right? Like it's, you know, you sort of realize that, yeah, everything you kind of see is a hallucination. Things aren't really that. You're sort of seeing a, a thin slice of reality. But it makes you aware, having that, that DMT experience really made me more aware of like how much your brain can do or how much you can generate from the inside because it's something that I've just never seen things like that. But it'll be interesting to see which parts of your mind, like what part of your visual cortex is being affected on LSD, on mescaline, on mushrooms, like, to create these different visual effects. I think it could really help understanding how our brain works and how human consciousness works and that we could be way further ahead in a lot of this neural understanding and neuroscience if we had been able to, to explore psychedelics openly uh, for the past couple of generations and not, not have it all be hidden. I think there's so much more to be learned and that a lot of these, these chemical drugs are going to really help us to make this understanding. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I have one question for you. Nat. I don't know if you can answer this, but for myself and for a couple of other people I know too, um, for, for me, I deal with a lot of anxiety and chronic pain. And so mushrooms usually tend to elevate that. Same with LSD. So I'm, I'm, I've, I've done MDMA a few times and had very powerful therapeutic experiences. Um, is there anything you would recommend at the store that would be more anxiety calming as opposed to potentially anxiety inducing like LSD? Inducing? Well, I would ask you what kind of doses did you, did you find that on like, like, a, like a psychedelic dose of mushrooms made you more anxious? Uh, it, it, that was one gram of mushrooms, uh, and then right. LSD. I did a full—I can't remember how much it was, but it was a full uh, dose, and where I was seeing incredible things. But it just really amped up the anxiety to a to a hundred, really, and it was really scary. And what kind of like when you took it? Were you in a in a situation where like did you were you with people that you feel safe with or by yeah. yourself in a safe environment? So it wasn't like you were in an anxiety-producing no. situation, right? No, no, no. So, no, so, if, so yeah. if you came into my shop, I mean, I'd recommend a few things. First of all, I'd, I'd recommend that you try microdosing mushrooms and try a much smaller dose and see if that gave you any kind of anxious feelings or not. It's not going to have I, the I same have psychedelic that. effect, but that might be something yeah, you want I have to done that, for. but I didn't really notice any differences or benefits from just taking 0 0.2, 0 0.3, or 0 0.5 grams. You didn't um, get much of a benefit. Like it normally takes a little while. You have to do a few doses. But anyways, that will be something to explore, I, w I would suggest, like trying smaller doses. You know, DMT has an interesting anti-anxiety effect. You find people are very calmed afterwards and kind of relaxed. And I've had people tell me that they use it for that effect and that they, they find after they have a trip. But the trip only lasts like, you know, five or ten minutes, that it puts them into a very calm and relaxed and anti-anxious state. I'd like to start offering MDMA. Hopefully before the end of the year, we've got MDMA out for sale. Uh, I also want to bring on like cocaine drops and other products too. You know, I'm just working on sourcing and making sure it's all done safely and responsibly and everything. But we really want to expand our menu, right? But MDMA is not something that you want to like, you could microdose it in the sense that you could take a small dose, but you don't microdose it like twice a week or whatever. MDMA is not meant to be taken very often. And it can have negative effects if you take it very regularly. So it's something that you want to space out, you know, at least a few weeks, probably a few months between dosages, yeah. right? Uh, but, yeah, it absolutely has really strong effects on people. It can be very beneficial. And, and like a lot of other things, people don't always really want to take it a lot. They often get a good healing effect from one or two dosages, right? So, you know, I'd like to be able to offer that. We don't have it now. Um, so, you know... 
if if you find that the, the psychedelic doses aren't aren't helping with your anxiety, and so it's not uncommon to feel more anxious on a psychedelic trip either, right? Sometimes it's something you've got to work through, you know, and that the mushrooms, especially, I think, and sometimes, like some people have told me when they're microdosing that they sometimes they get very emotional and they feel too emotional and they might be crying at an inappropriate moment and they don't like that, obviously. And I I recommend they use the LSD maybe as an alternative, but also I think that probably. Like maybe they got to go through something to kind of get that through and the mushrooms are opening up that door, but it can take a little bit to like go through it. So, mm. you know, it might be worth trying that again and seeing how it goes. And if you find it's not good or it's not for you or you don't want to do it, then that may be something. But maybe that anxiety is something that you are like approaching or that you're bringing in that sort of a, a challenge in yourself that part of you is resisting that right and that you're at odds with yourself in some way i'm it's hard to you know psychotherapize somebody that i don't know and yeah. thing. that's not really my role right but i do find that some people tell me that that subsequent dosages can help them make breakthroughs and get past that point so that might be the situation too that could be the underlying reason for anxiety but you know there's lots of different options right but uh, but trying it again in a different context trying microdosing if you find MDMA really works for you, then just maybe take MDMA once every few months, and maybe that'll provide you with the benefits that you need. Maybe mushrooms aren't for you, also, right? But, but I would I would consider trying a regular microdosing course if you if you think mushrooms might have something for you, that might be something to try, like taking the you know one or two hundred milligrams uh, twice a week or so, and try that just like for a month. Don't just do it once, see how you do, but give it a few weeks. And see if that has any effect on you. And people sometimes report, you know, after a couple of weeks, they notice, uh, it, they don't notice anything in the first dose or two, but after a couple of weeks, they notice overall improvements. So that might be something you wanted to pursue. <laughs> and uh, is there any other recommendation you may have at the store for, for compounds that may help reduce anxiety? I mean, we, we talked about Kratom, the red berry, and you said it's very relaxing. Yeah, I mean, Kratom, like, you do, we have a, a little user guide for every product that we sell, and the Kratom one, I definitely warn people, because if you don't need to take it every, like, if you take Kratom every day, you're going to get withdrawal symptoms when you want to stop using it, and it's going to be a challenge, right? So, but if you just use it, if you're using it occasionally, or once or twice a week, you're fine, as long as you can, like, maintain that, right? But uh, and so using it for anxiety can be fine if it helps you relieve that, but it's not going to be something like you take it every day and that I wouldn't recommend that because you're going to find you're hooked on, on Kratom, which is good for my business, I guess, but not like my intention. Right. So right. I would save Kratom for occasional use, uh, for certain times when you need that benefit or whatever, or to try it, see how it makes you feel definitely. Right. But you know, but I don't, it, it's not going to have like sort of a long-term healing effect like mushrooms and psychedelics and MDMA, Ideally, that produces a long-term, hopefully permanent benefit. Kratom's not like that. It's more like a pain-relieving thing that affects you, you know, in the moment, but isn't going to necessarily heal you, right, from that kind of stuff. Cannabis is like that, too. There are some, some things cannabis can heal you from, but cannabis is, cannabis is more like a treatment for things rather than something that you take once and then now you're better, right? Like, it, it, there are some instances like that, but cannabis is usually sort of something you take in a different way. So, mm. And uh, how popular is the DMT at your store? Like, I, it was stunning to me that you were openly selling this. I mean, we sell lots of it. I mean, it's still people are still hearing, hearing about us. We're still pretty new. We did some postering campaigns when we launched, and I should probably be doing another one around the city to, to get the word out there. But, you know, they're all on the same schedule as mushrooms pretty much. And so I figured, well, if, if the mushrooms in Schedule 3 and LSDs in Schedule 3, then why not just 
cell LSD2 and DMT2. And these things, I mean, really, DMT is also remarkably safe, like, yeah. especially in the vape pen. And you've actually, my only concern was that somebody would, like, get it mixed up with a different one and then accidentally, like, you know, while they're driving, they try to hit their tobacco pen and they hit the DMT pen instead. But with the DMT <laughs> pen, even that, even that wouldn't be an issue because you've got to take, like, two or three long intentional hauls. Like, you got to take a 10-second blast and then another one. And then the first one, you'll feel it, but you're not going to be there. The second one kind of gets you there. And really, you want like three or four. Uh, and then you can kind of ride. You know, DMT only lasts for about 10 minutes or so. But if you, with the vape pen, as it starts to fade, you can kind of take another hit. And you can kind of ride that DMT wave in a real nice way, I find, for a longer period. We don't sell the pure crystallized DMT, though we might do that at some point. But I find that's way harder to work with. You can kind of get a big blast off that and get kind of a good rush, but I really like the pen. I find it very manageable. I find the crystal very hard to work with. And so, you know, I for a bit, I was I have to test all the products that we sell pretty much. And I was smoking DMT fairly often or ingesting it. And I really enjoyed it, but I also find it kind of repetitive. So <clears throat> it definitely, I, I don't, haven't done any for quite a while now because it's I've, I've had the experience many times and I wouldn't mind doing it again sometimes. But I, I do find that, uh, well, I like it and it's really super interesting to experience. It's the same show every time, right? So for me, really? I, 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 I don't, other people report different things sometimes, you know, but I think a lot of psychedelics are really anti-addictive. Like that there is usually, I mean, somebody starts smoking when they're in their teens or early twenties, the odds of them smoking still when they're 50, it's pretty good. Not everybody, but it's pretty good, right? Someone starts smoking pot in their 20s, the odds of them smoking in their 50s, a lot less. I'd say more do, but it's still, most people don't do it. But people who take a lot of psychedelics when they're younger and that, they usually are not, like, taking a lot when they're older. Like, usually it's something you go through or you do certain times or whatever. I don't know. But I, I don't think people tend to, like, it's not like, oh, I had I was smoking DMT every night and now I'm hooked. I got to keep smoking DMT. Like, no, it's not like that at all, right? You have the experience. It's interesting. It's enjoyable. But I don't think it's necessarily like, I don't know, I, I don't want to do it every night forever. Like, it's not it's not like that. You kind of go through it. You see what's there. You go through that door and you explore it. Uh, I've also done ayahuasca trips as well. And ayahuasca, the active ingredient is DMT. But it's drunk orally. And you consume it with an, with an inhibitor that allows it to last longer in your body and to be properly metabolized. If you just eat DMT it's going to have very minimal effect because it's all going to get like destroyed and metabolized before it really does anything to you. Right. But ayahuasca, I find very similar to DMT except that lasts four hours. And when I was doing it, it was in kind of a church setting. So you're singing hymns in Portuguese and you're all dressed in white and there's a hundred people in this hall with you uh, who are all there for the same purpose. So you're all throwing up at the same time and you're all singing hymns at the same time and you're all, you know, and uh, I found that, you know, very profound and healing experience also. You don't throw up when you smoke DMT, but you definitely throw up when you drink uh, the ayahuasca brew. And you were saying that it is pretty popular at the store, the DMT pens? We sell, yeah, absolutely. We sell, we sell more of them every week. And people are hearing about that we have them, I think. And so as people get aware, uh, they come and they get one. And we sell two different – I'm trying to get a smaller size so that we can have like a – a mini one so people can because it, it's about a hundred and i'm kind of what the price is now 150 dollars or something to buy the small pen i'm trying to get my supplier to do me like a half size one so we can sell it for you know 80 bucks make it a little more easy to have your to have your experience but the pen it, it gives you about uh i think it's 10 
experiences, like 10 good trips from a pen. So, you know, you're getting your money's worth and it's a, it's a profound experience that you will remember for the rest of your life. Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, h- how's the media coverage been for your store? Have you gotten lots of it in Vancouver? Or yeah, it, yeah, it comes and goes, uh, but we've, we've definitely been in the news. We've been, Vice has done stories on us. Uh, we've been in the local media a few times when we first opened. You know, often they'll copy each other or something will happen. Mushrooms will come up and then there'll be a few stories. But also pretty much any time now somebody is doing a story about mushrooms or psychedelics, they'll call me and get a quote from me on the issue, right? And uh, also, you know, they'll, the, the, no other mushroom shop will go on the record, right? I mean, it was a lot with cannabis dispensaries too. Most of them don't have a face and a name attached to them, like pre-legalization. You know, some of them might, but usually not. And the same thing, I think I'm the only mushroom dispensary operator who's like, I'm Dana Larson and I'm selling mushrooms. And most of the other ones don't want to get in the news they probably think being on TV is risky and maybe gets them in trouble or something. I kind of see it as protection. People know about me, and it makes it an issue. If you come and raid me, it's a different kind of situation than if you raid somebody that's not in the news, right? So I feel, in a way, being public is important. And for me, I, I, part of what I'm doing is I'm trying to inspire others to do the same thing. And so it's important for me to kind of be bold and out there to to encourage others to do that as well. But yeah, the media coverage comes and goes. Every reporter I talk to, I always tell them, you should write about Kratom. It's a really interesting plant. And like, uh, considering the overdose death crisis that's happening, and you think it'd be a big story, but I can't get anybody to write about it. Even the coca tea, which is a schedule one drug, more illegal than mushrooms, but mushrooms and psychic, it's really the mushrooms everyone wants to talk about. And even, even mentioning that I sell DMT pens, like, you know, they'll come in and film my place and they'll film the coca and the LSD and the DMT and the kratom, but they'll only talk about the mushrooms. And to me, mushrooms are almost the least interesting thing we do in our place. Even though mushrooms are super interesting and revolutionary and important, I feel like we're doing a lot of other stuff. That We're the only place in the world where you can walk in and buy a coca plant off the shelf, like to grow your own coca. Like even in South America where coca is available – they don't, you can't just go into a store and buy it like that, right? It's just not, it's not done like that. And like, there's definitely no place where you can get a cup of coca tea and a microdose LSD shooter and buy some proscaline and a peyote plant and, uh, grab a bunch of, you know, magic mushrooms for the, for the, for the rest of the week or anything. It's, uh, it's absolutely unique what we're doing, but I hope that it doesn't stay unique. I hope that we are imitated across Canada and maybe one day around the world. Yeah. Well, I think unique is an understatement. I, I felt like a kid in a candy store walking inside and looking at the incredible variety that you had. Obviously, we've talked about that and the amazing artwork that you have. The paintings are beautiful. Uh, the environment's really friendly. The employees you have are great. I was talking to Phil, um, and he had, he had a lot of uh, information and gave us some interesting insights about what to look into. And I uh, ended up getting interested in the proceline, which he had done, and we talked a bit about that. Um, so I, I think uh, you've done a really well job in creating a, uh, an immersive, <laughs> friendly, and just comprehensive store that's welcome to anybody, even somebody who um, has never done psychedelics before or hasn't done them for a while. I mean, w- when I was there, I met somebody at the store who just kind of came to me and was looking for a little bit of knowledge, and I, I talked to them. And it was, it was a guy in his 50s who last time he had done psychedelics was when he was 20 or 21, and he said he heard about the store – and he was just checking it out for the first time. And 
I think he ended up buying some magic mushrooms and uh, maybe I think he maybe bought the proselyte as well. I'm not sure, but it was a really interesting conversation we had and it was great to see a lot of people there. Well, you, I'm glad you got to talk to Phil. I think he's the wins the most enthusiastic employee award and he regularly thanks me for being able to work in such a cool place. And he really loves our, our cafe almost as much as I do. So uh, it's good. You got to talk to him. He's uh, he's got a lot of good advice. And uh, last thing, like I've been trying to confirm this, and you kind of already have, but I mean, in terms of like a big open psychedelic store, I mean, is this really the only place in North America? Yeah, there's other mushroom shops in Vancouver, uh, definitely. I, I, I don't even know how many because new ones are opening all the time. I, I, as far as I know, I'm the only place selling LSD and DMT out of the same shop. I'm pretty sure nobody else is doing that. And I'm definitely the only place selling kratom and coca leaf and coca flower and coca plants and peyote and dried peyote. and all. There's nowhere else in the world doing that. I don't think there's any other shop that I know of in the world that sells LSD and DMT over the counter. I think that there are a few other mushroom shops in Vancouver. There may be, you know, in Amsterdam, I think you can get mushrooms over the counter now, or maybe, I don't know, under the counter, but they're sort of quasi legally available there. But no, no one else on earth is running a shop that I, as like I am. And uh, I'm really proud of that. You know, we took a lot, I spent years like getting the coca connections together, bringing the coca leaf in, figuring out how to make coca leaf available, you know, and, and, and figuring out how to sell LSD and how to make these things. And every, we got like, 10 different user guides in the cafe. I wrote every single one of those things, how to use coca leaf, how to use an LSD dropper, how to use mushrooms and like trying to make it, you know, give people the real basic but important information in a real concise kind of way. And uh, we're just getting started, man. Like in a year, we're going to have all kinds of more stuff. We're going to have MDMA. We're going to be selling, you know, hopefully cocaine drops and other products. And I really just want to expand our menu and also other herbs like Cava Cava and things like that too. I'd love to bring those in uh, as well. So one step at a time, but uh, I think we're pretty awesome now, but really it's just getting started. And my vision for this place is, uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens, but I'm really looking forward to it. Hopefully we're talking a year from now and I can tell you about all the new products we got. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I'm, I'm I'm so happy to see your, your store succeeding and you absolutely should be proud. I mean, you're, you're leading a movement in some ways by creating the store and inspiring other people to do the same. It, it's, it's really remarkable. And especially that you, as you said, you said you created all the guides and you got access to all these different substances. I, I'm a little curious how you got access to DMT, by the way. And well, I mean, I can't necessarily get into things too much, but I've got a good supplier who, who, who makes these great uh, vape uh, cartridges and um, it's a quality product, you know, and I don't make them myself. I don't usually make, you know, I don't grow my own mushrooms when I ran the cannabis dispensary. I didn't grow my own marijuana or make my own edibles or anything, right? But I want to work with people that are really good at what they do and that have uh, similar beliefs to mine and are in this because they want to have a business, but also because they believe that these things are beneficial and wonderful and they want to share the benefits of, of DMT with others. And so, those are the kind of people I like to work with. And um, I've, I'm hopefully going to be bringing on a different kind of DMT pen too. Like there's different variations of DMT and there's, there's other things we're hoping to have. So, and said, so we'll be bringing on the pure, the pure DMT as well. It's just, I find it harder to work with, but some people prefer that. And so, you know, I, I just want to keep expanding, right? There's a lot of new things to bring on. As long as nobody really tries to stop us, we're just going to keep on doing more and more. And, uh, 
it's just a lot of different products. It's a lot of it's starting to get, you know, running a cannabis, cannabis dispensary was one thing, but it was all just cannabis. You know, it comes in different forms and flavors and varieties. But this place, we've got so many different supply lines and different people bringing us different things and contacts around the world and across Canada. And it's, uh, it's a lot more complicated, a lot more moving parts, right? But, uh, but it's really, it's working really well so far and uh, everything kind of goes well symbolically together. Mm. And are you going to get access to 5-MeO-DMT at some point? Yeah, that's what I was talking about, the different kinds of DMT, right? We have the we have NN-DMT right now, and uh, we also sell, like, the MAO-DMT, which is, like, the list of, like, a psilocin uh, analog, right? But, uh, yeah, we're, I, there's another kind of vape pen that I'm, that I'm talking to somebody right now and working on being able to bring it in, and hopefully if all goes well in like a month or so we would have uh both kinds of dmt available in vape pen form wow that's amazing and mdma you said by the end of the year you think given that's that- my goal yeah yeah that's one that one's a bit, little bit you know just in terms of like i mean part of the risk for me is that somebody like buys some mushrooms from me and then does something irresponsible and then i sort of get blamed for it right they they buy some mushrooms from me they get real high they get in their car they go for a drive they kill themselves in an accident they find a big bag of mushrooms next to them with our label on it and of course i mean if it was alcohol you wouldn't go after the company that made that alcohol but everybody that as you know when you're going to purchase psychedelics from us you make you sign a thing saying like i'm not going to drive or swim or climb i'm going to be responsible you know i'm not going to do stupid things or whatever right just to encourage people to like be responsible users and so i just have to be you know because of the that that's i think a situation that if somebody wanted to shut us down that kind of thing would be the one to do it right like oh some, they sold this person this drugs and this bad thing happened and it's their fault right and of course you know if they weren't buying for me they'd be buying it somewhere else with less knowledge of what it is and no user guide and all that but so mdma is just something that i mean it's it's quite safe but I would say it's not as safe as mushrooms and there are, you know, risks involved about taking it really heavily or taking it regularly. So it might be sold in such a way that there's a bit more of a screening process, you know, or that we're limiting sales to people in a certain way. So you're only able to buy so much at a time or something. So I'm not quite sure. We're still thinking about those kind of things. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's safer than alcohol. It's probably be sold as openly as alcohol is, but that doesn't mean that as the first person selling it openly, you know, in Canada that I have to like do that right away. Right. There's a lot of room for medical requirements or to only certain people, or you've got to go through some kind of screening or something. So those are things we're thinking about, like how to make it available in a way that is open and accessible, but also protects us from, legal risks as much as we can when we're selling this stuff openly and protects our customers from themselves and from other things and you know that kind of stuff right so those are the sort of questions that we ask ourselves when bringing a new product on and how to how to make it done properly and how to regulate it and you know we're kind of creating a template for legalization in a way right like this Mm -hmm. is what we think legal shops should look like and you know, I don't, I don't, I think mushrooms should be sold with a warning label. I think alcohol should be sold with warning labels too, right? Like this product can have these negative effects and you should be aware of that. You could buy it if you want to use it if you want to, of course, you know, as the government will make sure that it's like not contaminated and is what the label says is actually what's in there, but it's your choice, but we'll let you know. And mushrooms, there's warnings. Mushrooms aren't toxic like cannabis. You can't die from mushroom overdose, but 
I wouldn't recommend taking a bunch, bunch of mushrooms and going for a swim or driving your car or climbing a tree or whatever. Like there's things that you should avoid and, you know, like, like just common sense stuff. Right. Hmm. And MDMA is going to be decriminalized next year in, in BC as a number of other drugs are. Are you going to be selling it perhaps before then or in line with when that happens? Well, that doesn't really impact what I'm doing because I'm selling. I would be selling it. And so that doesn't affect, like, the law. It doesn't affect trafficking. But it does create sort of a, a moral aspect to it. Like, well, if you're decriminalizing possession and then I'm selling it in the most safe and responsible manner possible under prohibition, you're going to prioritize me as a place to go after. So, you know, it kind of just like, you know, medicinal access to cannabis kind of created an opening for broader use and kind of a moral argument against shutting places down. I think that helps, but uh, they're decriminalizing it. It's very bizarre. This decriminalization. I mean, I absolutely support anything that means less drug users are getting harassed by the cops. I support the number of grams is small and kind of weird. And the way that they've done it only by substance is kind of odd because often I also run the get your drugs tested center. We haven't talked about that, but I run the world's busiest free center. Anybody can come in and get your drugs tested. It takes 10 minutes. We'll tell you what's pretty much exactly what's in your substance or whatever it may be. We've, we've analyzed over 30,000 drug samples at our storefront in Vancouver and by mail over the last three years, all our test results are online with photographs of the substances, what it was sold as, what the analysis was, any notes or whatever. It's all online at getyourdrugstested.com. And, um, and so, you know, we often find people don't even know what they have. So they might think they have one drug, but they really have something else. So if you're caught with possession of one of the drugs that's decriminalized, but you actually have a different drug that you didn't realize, that creates a weird situation because they're only decriminalizing a few things. Not, if you get caught with mushrooms, Theoretically, you could still be charged with with a gram of mushrooms, but you know, in Vancouver, it's unlikely. But across the country, it may be different. But if you get caught with a gram of fentanyl, you would not be charged. And I support not charging people, but it's why not apply it to all substances? They're only applying it to the ones that are potentially fentanyl contaminated and potentially more likely to kill you. But it just seems like a weird situation where you can possess only the most dangerous drugs but not the safer ones. It seems like kind of a backwards thing, right? Like I understand the logic behind it, but it also seems very weird way to go about things. Why not just decriminalize everything? Because if you only decriminalize the more dangerous things, and in some way that is encouraging possession of those things, if possession of heroin or fentanyl becomes less risky than possession of something else, doesn't that seem weird? So it's an odd kind of decrim, but it's not going to affect us. I don't really take that into consideration, but I do think it makes it harder for somebody to want to come after us when they're already acknowledging prohibition doesn't work and already beginning on their end to dismantle it with the tiniest little half step of decriminalizing possession of tiny amounts of, of a few limited things. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for you to bring access to MDMA because, like I said, I've benefited from it tremendously in terms of healing trauma. And I've written about this on my Substack publication. Um, and I intend to use uh, use it again at some point in the future. And uh, if you ever want, I could uh, perhaps connect you with uh, Carson Kavari, who's the clinic director of Thrive Downtown Psychedelic Therapy Clinic that is doing amazing work. I- I've done all my psychedelic work there, guided um, well, at the clinic. I don't know if you know much about it, but they do incredible work and they have um, a really rigorous screening process that, um, that that they do for MDMA and for all other substances. So if you ever wanted to um, 
collaborate or just get to know um, what their screening is like for these things, um, I can be sure to connect you if you wanted that. Well, I always like connecting with different people who are doing similar things. And I think that the field of, you know, psychedelic therapy is really burgeoning. Although it's also interesting because it's not really like, you know, there's no certifying group that can give you the stamp of like, yes, I'm a certified LSD therapist. And for some of these things, you know, some of the studies that are done, they just give the person mushrooms, they have them lie down on a couch, they put headphones on, they put eye, eye covers on, and they just uh, lay there quietly for four hours. And they will describe it as an incredibly therapeutic experience with no interaction and no actual sort of therapy given. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I've often thought about creating a safe space for people to come. I don't think I'm qualified to like, you know, sit with somebody while they're tripping and like get them to talk about stuff or whatever. I don't know. But I, but I think offering a safe space where you can have that experience, let the medicine do its work. And some of the work can also be maybe not while you're having the experience, but afterwards, like talking to a therapist. Hey, while I was high, I had this insight about such and such, about my parents, about my own behaviors, and sort of exploring the insights that you get. Because I think it's very common to have epiphanies and to have insights, especially if you're seeking that, you know, just to understand yourself or others better. Uh, and that's kind of part of forgiveness, right? Oh, my dad was like that because his dad was like that and he did this and he's, oh, that's why he was such a whatever. And like you can sort of, you know, understand things. And I think that often happens with people. They get, they're able to sort of step outside themselves and get a new perspective on things that can help them reframe their own experiences and other people's experiences and stuff. And then that's how you kind of integrate and move past stuff. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a big thing. I think you got to be cautious because people are definitely emotionally vulnerable and MDMA. I mean, there's been some scandals in the psychedelics, you know, therapy thing because yeah. of people sleeping with their, and that happens yeah. in, in, in non psychedelic therapy too, right? It's not like it's only in psychedelic therapy where these boundaries get, get blurred but you know mdma can be very sensual and you can feel aroused and and horny and loving and these emotions can be very powerful and if you're in a situation where you're with a therapist who's like helping you understand stuff or something that can sometimes lead to connections that maybe shouldn't be happening right so uh you got to be careful with that kind of stuff uh i think and it's not good for the individuals or for like but it's also good to recognize that it's not that's not only in psychedelic therapy, and that's a challenge, I think, in all kinds of therapeutic and healing kind of situations, that sort of emotional vulnerability, right? It's hard to you gotta make sure people aren't taking advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah, and in these in these studies that they've done primarily at Johns Hopkins and with MAPS when it comes to MDMA, Johns Hopkins have done the psilocybin studies. It's usually psilocybin assisted or MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And that means it's two or three sessions of MDMA or psilocybin where you're there with a guide. Um, and then it's like two or three sessions um, of psychotherapy afterwards to help integrate the experience. So it's a very um, comprehensive process that deals with the, the, the pre-work, like having a sense of what you're getting into and then the actual trip, um, which in my experience, have, having a guide there uh, and doing my work through Thrive Downtown, they, um, I mean, the guides were crucial in my experience because I got stuck at several places on MDMA trying to process things. So the guide there is there to help you navigate those difficult terrains and help you um, and help you actually uh, progress in your trip and, and not get so stuck in certain areas or maybe give you a suggestion of like, hey, maybe you need to um, think, think about your family. Maybe, uh, maybe now you can think about the future instead of getting so stuck here. And so that... I think can be incredibly useful. And again, 
if you are looking to build a safe space, potentially um, uh, having potentially having somebody on staff. I mean, it, like you said, there's no objective certification for doing this work. But Thrive Thrive Downtown has many uh, highly experienced people who have done this for for a while, um, and I'm just I'm just thinking in my head right now what that would look like if there was some kind of center where you have four or five on staff experienced psychedelic guides, and you just come in um, and you charge them out, and they can they can watch you during your experience. I think that could be really interesting, and uh, I, th- I think Thrive Downtown is, is a great place to. Uh, potentially connect with for doing that kind of work. Well, you're probably right about that. I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of stuff opening up. And yeah, I would agree. I think, I think a light touch is, is needed when you're guiding people. Like you don't want to be like aggressively trying to probe them or, or get no. in their head or whatever. But I think you're right. People can, when they're going through something and I, I definitely had like uh, on our stuff, we say like, do not, if you're feeling depressed, don't like take a bunch of mushrooms thinking it's going to like cheer you up. Because that can lead, you can get more depressed. Like mushrooms can definitely, and other psychedelics can potentially lead you into a downward spiral if you're challenging with stuff and you're not used to the experience. And having somebody there just to redirect you a little bit or give you a touch or a nudge or the right word or to, to help you focus on the right stuff can be very useful and make a huge difference therapeutically and for your experience, right? I had one, one person uh, that contacted me and we supplied them with some uh, chocolates and they had one experience with somebody who was there with them. Their friend was there, and they found it really uh, healing and beneficial. When they were taking microdoses, they had found it wasn't that great for them. But this larger dose, they really had some breakthroughs and were doing really good. But, you know, to one experience, it can be changing, but it's not always it either, right? Often you move back into your previous state. I think microdosing is good for that, too, because microdosing helps to reinforce the things I learned from the bigger trip. So you take a big trip and you kind of get this experience and insights. And then when they fade, the microdose just kind of reminds you of that stuff. You know, that's more for mushrooms and things, but than MDMA, I guess. But anyways, and then she said a couple of months later, she was feeling really depressed and down and she took a chocolate by herself, which is absolutely what I told her not to do, you know, not by yourself and not when you're feeling depressed and she got really down, ended up like calling the suicide hotline and going to the hospital and da da da, and had a very negative experience, right? And so, you know, mushrooms and these things, they're, they're not always super positive, especially if you're struggling with stuff. I think uh, the microdosing, I think, is easier. You don't really need that. But I think, yeah, having somebody there with you doesn't always have to be a trained person, but at least somebody that you trust, that you feel emotionally open with who you can, you know, you can feedback on, you can give you some, give you the right words at the right time, some empathetic, you know, if it's not a professional, at least somebody who you're friendly with, who can, who's non-judgmental, who's going to be there for you and can, and is, you know, smart enough to know or emotionally smart enough to know how to like, you know, guide you on the right path a little bit. I think that's really important one way or the other. Not everybody can afford, you know, sometimes it ends up costing several hundred dollars. I'm not sure what you paid for your experience, but it can be. Yeah, it was a lot for some people. Yeah, and so that's also like a barrier. Like you want it to be. I mean, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a life-changing therapeutic experience, obviously, probably very worth it to you, right? But not everybody. For some people, you know, they don't have access to that. So you want to try to make it accessible to people. So I don't know. The, and plus, COVID, of course, made it very hard to to do that kind of stuff. But those are things I'm hoping. You know, on my list of new projects, I'd love to help create another space like that and to, and to help make that go forward. But 
I think we're going to see a lot of those opening up. That That's really amazing. A place like that, I think, would be hugely beneficial. And I mean, ho- hopefully in the future, hopefully there's some quasi-utopian future, uh, three, three or four decades from now, or maybe even earlier, where you go to a doctor or you go to a counselor, whether you're at university or just through work or, or whatever it is, and you get prescribed, you know, you have depression, you have PTSD, you need a session of MDMA, you need a session of psilocybin. Here's the place to go. Here's a center. Um, and, you know, go there, contact this person. They'll give it to you. They'll have a guide there. They'll, they'll, they'll scan through and see if you have any medical risks and whatnot and do this. And this will um, hopefully perhaps transform your life or at least give you a new, a new perspective. I think that would be really huge. And if, um, if you can start creating that, I think that would um, go a really long way. But right now I'm just in, in continual awe and appreciation for you, Dana. For the store, I mean, it's, it's really incredible. I mean, I'm so lucky to have been born here. I guess I'm I'm lucky that uh, my parents immigrated from India to uh, BC as opposed to like the US or England, where if I wanted to do psychedelics, it would be a little more difficult to do that. Whereas I'm here in BC <laughs> and very close to your store, so it's uh, it's it's great that I'm here, and it's great that people of Vancouver are uh, being exposed to these kind of things, and that you're inspiring people across the country um, and hopefully globally to uh, uh, change their perspective on psychedelics. And we're, we're seeing a lot of books, a lot of literature, a lot of media around this. I mean, we have the, the, the how to change your mind Netflix series is released now by Michael Pollan. That that's doing really well. You know, guys like uh, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, they've all been talking a lot about this in a very positive, encouraging way. Um, and I think uh, more and more people are becoming aware. So, kudos to you for doing what you're doing it's it's amazing well you know a lot of those people that you mentioned will complain about canada and say that we're under a tyranny and that canada is not free anymore and there's different ways of looking at things obviously and from some perspectives i'd say that's true if you're really you know against vaccine mandates and the limits on travel and stuff absolutely canada's got some pretty strict ones but you know on the other hand we're the only country federally that's legalized cannabis That makes us a lot more free than a lot of other places, although I wouldn't credit necessarily Trudeau for what I'm doing in Vancouver. The reality is there's probably no other country on earth that enjoys the freedom to have somebody like me be able to do what I'm doing in Vancouver and to make that happen. So, you know, it's always a mixed bag, right? Depends on what perspective you look at things on, uh, you know, things are one way or the other. But uh, I I always think if you've got freedom, you want to use that to spread it to other people. And I think in Vancouver, especially right now at this time and place, and maybe me particularly, like this is an opportunity to break through here where there's not a lot of resistance locally and create an example. Hopefully that spreads all across Canada and all around the world. And uh, I I do think that what we're doing here is going to have a global impact when it comes to like uh, creating more civil disobedience and openness and, and awareness and ending the whole war on drugs, which is just like the worst thing every day i wake up and i think what am i going to do today to like try to stop the war on drugs and then i get to work Hmm. yeah that's amazing and and yeah i i would personally my opposition at first i was very agnostic about the war on drugs and i i I see at least some arguments for it but i'm i'm definitely leaning towards your side i haven't formally said anything on twitter or written about it but definitely leaning towards opposing it and see great value in what you're doing but I, I think I, I would apply the same principles for me in terms of vaccine mandates. And I think I think our rights were totally violated. Informed consent was violated on those issues. Um, and I think 
um, you know, banning and restricting unvaccinated Canadians from traveling, from moving around, from from uh, leaving the country, from entering the country was absolutely egregious and unjustified. And I'm I'm just as repulsed by that as I am by the war on drugs. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, I I think a conservative government in Canada like probably would have done a lot of the same stuff. You know, like we saw that at the provincial level, where conservatives and and left and right wing governments all, you know, some variation, but they, everybody put in some kind of restriction, right? So, but uh, but yeah, I mean, they're all restrictions on liberty, and those are absolutely you know, I I support being in as free as country as possible. I support reasonable regulations on drugs. Like I don't think. You know, I think the proper labeling, I think some, some things should be more accessible than other things and more readily available. I don't think putting people in prison for what they take or what they want to use is ever the right policy, right? But, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, point out there's different perspectives on things, right, and how to, how to look at stuff. And uh, I'm not, like, a, you know, a big fan of forced vaccinations or anything like that. But in many ways, Canada is uh, one of the freest countries on Earth, certainly when it comes to the kind of work I'm doing. I'm, I'm blessed that I'm in Vancouver and able to be here and help transform this city. And I don't think we could do this anywhere else on earth right now. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I think there was one question from a listener here, Anne. I'm just going to invite her to speak. Um, I don't know if she still has that question or if anybody else has a question um, before we just sign off here. Anne, did you have a question? Just wait a second here. I think uh, maybe not. Anyway, Dana, it was uh, good talking to you. Appreciate your time. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. You know, you got my website, mushroomdispensary.com. Also at my own website, danalarson.com. I do a bunch of other stuff we didn't talk about. I write books and have the Get Your Drugs Tested Center. But if you like what I had to say, check me out, danalarson.com, and you can see all my stuff there. Yeah, that's amazing. I look forward to probably seeing you on Sunday. Um, around the, the afternoon time, as we talked about. Wow, we've, we've talked so long, so now we feel like we know each other. It'll be good to see you in person. Yeah, that'll be great. And, I, and I'm going to be writing about this most likely in the next uh, few weeks in the New York Post and doing some other bigger podcasts and talking more about this and help create awareness for, for, for your store, but also the broader psychedelic movement. Um, I, I hope to also just expand the coverage of your store in other major American outlets, which I've written for before, um, and maybe even the Globe and Mail, which I've written for. I, I've primarily written for the New York Post and the Globe and Mail. And so I'm going to see um, and contact my co- and, and contact the people that I know there, see if I can uh, promote your store more um, and talk about what you're doing and uh, the broader psychedelic movement in Canada. I think that'll be really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. I'm always happy to chat. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dana. Have a good day. All right. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye.